This past year, I worked as the news editor of my student newspaper at the University of British Columbia, UBC for short, in Vancouver, Canada. One of my responsibilities at this paper was to cover breaking news that need to be written on very short notice. Important announcements from the university, crime on campus, and especially protests. Now, UBC has a lot of protests. Over the past year, I have reported on climate strikes and sit-ins, protests in solidarity with Hong Kong and Kashmir, and rallies for indigenous rights. But the most heated demonstrations took place when controversial public figures were invited to speak on campus. In October of last year, one such speaker was invited by, invited by a UBC free speech group. His name is Ricardo Duchesne, and he's an academic at a Canadian university, but he recently lost his professorship because of his views. He's a white nationalist, which means he believes countries like Canada and the US should restrict immigration to keep nations more racially segregated because he thinks that having too much cultural and racial mixing makes it hard for society to get along and can lead to widespread unhappiness and, in his opinion, violence, crime, and racial clashes. It's hard to acknowledge and wrap our heads around how people like, can think like this, but many do. And one of the most outspoken thinkers had been invited to my campus and my home, and it was also a home to tens of thousands of students who would have been targets of his proposed policies. Duchesne had come to campus before, and he had received media coverage criticizing his views and associating him with nefarious far-right organizations. Because of this, an activist group on campus, the UBC Students Against Bigotry, had organized a small but committed group of people to counter-protest Duchesne. At the time, I was pretty certain that I wanted to be a journalist professionally, so I was looking forward to covering this event as a career opportunity. I dreamed of reporting on cutting-edge political and cultural issues. This was my calling, I thought, my way of contributing to society, and when would I find anything as cutting-edge as this? So when the group that invited Duchesne and his co-speaker reached out to me to interview the speakers before their event, I immediately took the opportunity and sat with them for 45 minutes at a cafe right in the middle of campus. I figured if I was going to write an article about such a sensitive topic, I ought to do my research and make sure I knew exactly what these speakers stand for, especially because they had already received so much harsh media criticism. The following day, the day of the event, the protesters assembled before marching to the talk, and I quickly realized that this would not be like the demonstrations I had covered in the past. They dressed in black, and many of them covered their faces with black masks and bandanas. They screamed chants and blasted protest music, and I mean blasted. People shrank and covered their ears as the group marched across campus. This did not look like the beginnings of a peaceful protest to me. When the crowd arrived at the building where the event was taking place, they immediately clustered around the door. They continued to yell and chant and slammed on the windows to disrupt the event organizers who were gathering inside. Over the next hour, as attendees arrived, the protesters blocked their path, forcing them to part the crowd of 30 or so screaming people if they were to enter the building. The university had sent guards to secure the event, and to let attendees in, one of these guards had to press his back into the door with all his strength to open it against the mob that was pushing from the other side. One by one, seven cop guards arrived on the scene to ensure that it didn't escalate, and luckily it didn't. But the protesters were careful never to perform acts of violence themselves. Instead, their behavior was intended to provoke the event's attendees into violence by harassing them with insults, loud noises, and physical intimidation. Luckily, I was able to enter the building from a side door, but once I got inside, I noticed a noxious smell. 
Someone had stuffed either stink bombs or actual human excrement into the vents of the lecture hall so that anyone attending the talk would have to fight to ignore the stench in order just to focus. The organizers and building managers were, not, were unable to find, let alone remove, the source of the odor. These protesters were doing everything they possibly could, the kitchen sink and more, to prevent this event from taking place. The, the talk started late, but once it did, it basically went as planned. Duchesne's views were as advertised. Few people attended, and most who did were affiliated with the free speech group that invited him, but there were a handful of students who attended out of curiosity and asked the speakers challenging questions. When the talk was over, I immediately approached these students for interviews. They said they disagreed with the speaker, but also criticized the protesters for attempting to disrupt his right to speak. That evening, I got a good night's sleep. I spent the whole following day writing, and then my article was published the next morning, and I was pretty proud of it. It explained Duchesne's views and why they received so much criticism. It described the protests and included quotes from students who disagreed with Duchesne, but believed the protesters should have more peaceful tactics and not attempt to disrupt his talk. Knowing that the article was high stakes and highly sensitive subject matter, I had my boss look it over before publishing. I thought I had covered all my bases. But a few days after that, two friends and fellow writers approached me and said that they wanted to talk about my story. We sat in a conference room, shut the door, and then they told me that they were uncomfortable with how the article was reported. They explained that as people of color and children of immigrants, when Duchesne talks about curbing immigration and organizing societies by race, he's basically saying that they and their families do not deserve to exist in Canada. They knew that I disagreed with Duchesne, but they felt that by including quotes in my article that were critical of Duchesne's protesters, and by including quotes from my interview with Duchesne, I was implying that he had a right to a platform on campus and to our media coverage. I was impl implying that his views were worthy of our consideration and important. They continued to explain that they were passionate about journalism because they longed to be a voice for those who are chronically marginalized and ignored, and my article, they felt, was doing the opposite. They went on to ask they work harder to publish stories that spotlight marginalized groups like indigenous, black, and queer students and then in the future, I should consider not even covering stories like this one at all. In the moment, I was crushed by this conversation. Though I was technically their boss, I considered their, these writers to be my good friends, and I had a lot of respect for their ability as writers and journalists. As they gave me feedback, I felt attacked. I thought they were saying I was bad at my job, and that my article was racist, and therefore I was racist, and by extension, a bad person. I didn't get angry or throw a tantrum, but I was defensive. And I tried to argue that the decisions I made had nothing to do with my race. The conversation dragged on and on, and everyone got increasingly frustrated and tired and we, until we decided it was time to give it a break. We met several times after that as we worked to eventually resolve the argument and heal our relationship. But in the nights that followed, I would find myself awake at strange hours, rehearsing arguments in my head, defending myself to an imaginary jury, and trying to cling to an image I thought had been shattered an image I had developed at camp, that I was a good person. But of course, the confrontation was devastating for the writers, my friends, too. One of them left that conversation sobbing. And as hurt as I felt, it must have been terrifying for them to approach me given that I was their boss and I had power over them. What's more, I was their friend and they didn't want to hurt my feelings. After all, it was only because of our friendship that they felt comfortable enough to give me that feedback in the first place. Despite its difficulty and complexity, I learned so much from this series of events. For one, 
It showed me how volatile and urgent our racial climate is and how the perspectives of everyone involved is deeply influenced by their race. It humanized the politics of racism for me when before the issue could seem far off and abstract. But more importantly, it showed how because I've never experienced racial prejudice on a large scale, because I'm white, I was blinded to how my actions and words were harmful to others. Because the other art writers were people of color, they could see more clearly what the impacts of Duchesne's words were. And I was so blinded that when they brought, my, brought me constructive criticism, I took it personally and interpreted it as a slight on my character. It showed that my grasp of race and its influence was fragile, and that I was too uncomfortable with the topic <clears throat> to analyze how I may benefit from and be implicated in racism. I wanted to run away and hide, but if I wanted to prevent further mistakes, I needed to develop a better understanding. Now, you may have noticed at Camp Pasquani that we tend to avoid politics. We have campers from all over the world in many walks of life, and as Mr. Vinny says, if you asked every member of our community for their definition of God, you would get hundreds of different answers, and you would certainly get hundreds of different answers if you asked them about politics or race, protesting, what have you. We strive to be apolitical because we want everyone to feel welcome here, regardless of the views that they grew up with. So instead of politics, we talk about values, the principles and morality that guide our everyday decisions, the stuff we can all agree upon. So then, why did I tell you this story? Why did I choose race as my topic for today's talk? It's so politically charged, so complicated and thorny, fraught with material that might discomfort or offend, but perhaps most urgently, it lacks obvious right and wrong answers. And that's why we need to talk about it. Conundrums like these are loaded with moral questions that test our basic principles and our belief in them. You are all likely familiar with a story that's similarly complex and as relevant as ever, the killing of George Floyd by white police officers while he was being arrested for buying cigarettes with counterfeit bills. You may have seen the video. The murder sparked protests and even riots across the United States and the world against police brutality. You may have seen an example last Thursday, before the first game of the NBA's long-awaited restart, when the players of the Utah Jazz and New Orleans Pelicans all knelt during the national anthem in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Similar acts of defiance will almost certainly continue in the coming months and in other sports and venues. Again, if I asked you what you think of, about Floyd's death or the ethics of rioting or police reform, I'd probably get dozens of different answers. My goal today is not to tell you what to think. Rather, the central lesson I want you to take away is this. Each and every one of us needs to stop and think about racism as a nation, as a camp, and at home. We need to analyze how racism has shaped our lives and the lives of those around us, and we need to have conversations about race that will help us develop the language that's necessary for discussing and understanding it. In his book, On the Right Side of Freedom, leading Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson calls language the first act because it gives us, quote, the words to describe, to unpack, and to frame the world around us, unquote. Only after we have recognized and framed a problem with our words can we begin to address it. Today we're going to perform this first act by talking about race together. My enemy here is something that, we, that has been coined colorblind racism. Um, you've probably heard it before when people say stuff like, oh, I don't see race, or it's racist to talk about race all the time. And I have to admit, I've said and thought stuff like this in my past. In short, those who fall into colorblind racism believe that the best way to fight it is to stop talking about it, to pretend racism doesn't exist. On the surface, 
this might seem like a good strategy, one that allows us to, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, judge others by the color of their skin, or excuse me, judge others not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. But it also poses a number of severe problems. First of all, by refusing to talk about race and racism, we deny the experiences of the experiences of people of color who aren't able to just opt out of racism, because they are confronted with race every day, in the media, socially, and in, in, and in their interactions with the police and other authorities. Second, colorblind racism assumes that all forms of racism take place at the conscious level, and racial prejudice will just go away once everyone deliberately rejects it. On the contrary, some of the most hurtful forms of discrimination take place at the subconscious level. That is, we think and do them without being aware that we're doing them. Trying to act like race doesn't exist only forces our discriminatory assumptions deeper into the subconscious, so we're left unaware when they surface. Colorblind racism also assumes that we can just get over our prejudiced impulses, and therefore every act of discrimination means we're bad people who haven't been converted to the light side yet. This belief is why I was so sensitive and defensive when the writers at my paper brought me private feedback. But unfortunately, racism exists all around us in subtle ways, and despite our good intentions, we were all raised in an environment that reinforces these assumptions. We would never say that we finished perfecting honesty or kindness or any of the other principles we practice here at camp. We must accept that fighting racial prejudice is always a work in progress, too. I'll also point out that while talking about race has always been the right thing to do, my story at UBC shows that it's also the most prudent thing to do. By prudent, I mean that it's the best for you and your future. When you go to college or embark on a career, it's very likely that you will find yourself in situations where it's helpful and probably essential to be able to talk about race with respect and thoughtfulness. By beginning to practice this skill now, you're equipping yourself with tools that will make you a more empathetic and effective teammate and leader. And while this talk is specifically geared towards race, much of this work also needs to be done to prevent discrimination against women, members of the LGBTQ plus community, religious minorities, and many other persecuted groups. Once you work to increase your awareness of how racism influences your circumstances, you might be surprised and humbled by what you find. For example, in my own life, I grew up and my parents still live in a relatively mixed neighborhood called Mount Vernon, New York. Through third grade, I went to a school that was a block away and had a population of about 50-50 black to white students. But my parents were concerned that if I stayed in Mount Vernon, I wasn't going to get a good education. Uh, Mount Vernon High School was a notoriously bad school, and I remember my dad telling me when I was very young, you don't want to go to Mount Vernon High School because there are knife fights there. You probably read this in a newspaper at some point and thought it would be a good way of explaining to me why the school wasn't for me. But that image left a lasting impression. So my parents paid extra tuition to send me to the school in the neighborhood next door called Bronxville, New York. Unlike Mount Vernon, Bronxville is an extremely wealthy town, and accordingly, they had a well-funded and prestigious public school. But the town and the school were almost exclusively white. Now, I don't think it was wrong for my parents to send me to Bronxville High. They wanted to provide the best education for me that they possibly could. But think about the bad lessons that this incident taught me about, my, about race without my realizing it. First of all, because of the reputation of Mount Vernon High School, a reputation that I was made aware of at a very young age, I was taught to associate its many black students with poverty, poor education, and because of the knife fights, violence. And on the opposite end, I was taught to associate the white students of Bronxville with wealth, intelligence, and opportunity. I was taught that the essence of upward mobility, making progress in life, 
is to move out of poorer mixed race neighborhoods into wealthy white neighborhoods. And what's strangest about this is that while I was at Bronxville, I was preoccupied not with the opportunity I was getting, but how I felt like an outsider there because I lived in Mount Vernon, not in Bronxville. Now, of course, on the conscious level, my parents and teachers all taught me that everyone is equal and racism is wrong. But simultaneously, on a subconscious level, because of how the society around me was structured, I was trained to think in certain ways that were racist. It's only after recognizing and thinking about how race has influenced me and my course through life that I'm able to unpack those assumptions and work towards improving my behavior. If you analyze your life through this lens, you'll inevitably notice many other ways that racism is shaping your life and the lives of those around you. The key here to use a camp term is to maintain a seeing eye. Watch for these racist acts or social structures that are usually subconscious so that you can bring them into your conscious awareness and work to counteract them. So I challenge you to do this type of detective work. I'm sure many of you have already been doing it for a long time, but many of us could afford to think about it even more. Perhaps you'll notice how people of one race exclude people of another race when eating lunch in the cafeteria, or that slavery and segregation don't seem to be fully addressed in history books, or that certain groups are targeted in political speeches. For, mo for my own part, I've had to think about how, if I could do, do it over again, I would rewrite that article to include quotes that are critical of the protesters' tactics but could never be read as an endorsement of Duchesne and its views. As Mike mentioned in his chapel talk last Friday, because of the pandemic, the protests, and our upcoming presidential election, our current moment only seems to grow more divisive and contentious. And as a result, it's easy to feel powerless, like you should be doing something to help, but you don't know what to do. It might not sound like much, but analyzing the racism around you and starting conversations about it with your friends and loved ones is a good place to start. In the words of the black essayist and novelist James Baldwin, it empowers us to see ourselves as we are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. And like most things at camp, it just begins with taking a moment to stop and think, to sow a thought and thus an act, a habit, a character, a destiny. Thank you.